everybody hear me okay? Yay. Um, what she said. <laughs> <laughs> um, good morning. I am fairly new here at Dartmouth. I started just almost exactly a year ago. Um, and you can tell I'm new because I agreed to do nursing for you around the same week that the budget was due. Um, I'll know better next year. <laughs> so, um, to start off with, um, people who obviously need kidney transplants are people with end-stage kidney disease. Um, ESRD. There are only two options of treatment for end-stage kidney failure, and that is either dialysis or a transplant. If a patient chooses and some patients do, not to have any treatment, um, then at some point they will die from kidney failure. That is the reality for these patients. There are not a whole lot of options, and neither option is 100% great. So, um, there are two forms of dialysis. There are two different ways in which you can get a kidney transplant, so we're gonna go over the, some of those. Um, here at Dartmouth, we do kidney transplants, technically adult and pediatric. Although we probably wouldn't do little tiny babies, we certainly do a fair number of larger children and teenagers. Um, we do both living donor transplants and deceased donor transplants. Um, to start going through this in the process of kidney transplantation, the first thing is that we have to determine if a person is actually a suitable transplant um, Not everyone can receive a transplant. We'll talk more about this. So the patient comes, they get referred to us by either, usually a nephrologist, um, once in a great while from their primary care physician, and they go through an entire evaluation. And this, trans in transplant, we work very much as a multidisciplinary team. This is not a physician-only type of visit. And so they come for an evaluation day where they get educated um, about the process of transplantation and they get to see all of these people in one day. So our patients show up at 8.30 in the morning and they get to go home around three o'clock in the afternoon. We do do that break. <laughs> Uh, but it's a long day. It's a very long day, and it's exhausting, and it's filled with information, and they go home with their head full, and probably remember less than 10% of everything that we told them. Um, <clears throat> I think that twice. Um, what happens during this visit is they do get a history and a physical by both a medical physician, a nephrologist, as well as a surgeon. So different points of view. Are they medically suitable for a transplant? They may be, but they may have some type of um, factor, physical factor that would not allow them to actually have surgery. So again, two different docs, two different points of view. What we're doing is really assessing their transplant risk, and we'll talk about what that risk is in a second. Um, but we try to assess their, their transplant risk, and then we discuss that risk with the patient and the family. We do a brief review of the drugs, mostly what taking these drugs mean to a patient long term. We don't talk about specifics because they're probably not going to get that the natural transplant for several months. We review their family history, we review their insurance needs, and again, we discuss this whole process with both the patient and they have to have testing. This is how we know if a person actually can be a transplant recipient or not. So HLA testing, which is the genetic testing that we use to see how we match people up. We draw blood for that. We check their hepatitis status, make sure that they don't have active hepatitis. Um, HIV, a person with HIV can be transplanted as long as they're not uh, in an active AIDS state. Uh, we do blood clotting studies, we uh, follow their hemoglobin A1Cs if they're diabetic, and of course your basic chemistries, blood counts, all of those types of things as well. We have to make sure that a transplant patient 
is doesn't have an active cancer. Remember, these people are immune suppressed, and we'll be talking about the drugs in a minute. But this is what the risk is all about. We're suppressing their immune system. So again, we have to make sure that they don't have an active cancer. So any woman, age appropriate, um, would have a pelvic exam and pap smear, uh, and then your mammograms, PSA, colonoscopy, all that lovely stuff that we're all supposed to do. Um, we want to really know what their cardiac and vascular situation is. And so all of them start off with an EKG. A lot of them will have an echo. Most of them will have some type of stress test because, again, they have kidney failure. Um, and so they are at risk for cardiac and vascular disease, especially if they are on dialysis. And a lot of them end up having a cardiac catheterization. If the stress test comes back positive in any way, we have to know exactly what's going on. So the reality is, is the majority of people that are on dialysis are not transplanted patients. They will never make that mark. Why? Um, well, the good news for most of us is that most people don't develop kidney failure until they're, until they're elderly, until the end stages of their lives. So it's actually a small percentage, 20 to 25% of people who develop kidney failure at a younger age, at an age that we would consider them a transplant candidate. So, you know, if you have a 75-year-old who develops kidney failure from diabetes that already has a history of cardiac disease, that already has a history of vascular disease, that person is probably not going to be a transplant candidate. So each person is evaluated individually. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of what we do. We don't, you know, decide that, okay, at 65, everybody older than that can't have a transplant. Um, we do look really hard at people who reach the age of 72 and above. Um, they get extra looks, they get extra testing, uh, but we don't necessarily cut people off at an exact age, all right? It really depends on the history of the patient. So, as I said, the risk of transplant comes because we are immune suppressing these people forever. When someone gets a kidney transplant, they have to take those immune suppressive medications for the rest of their lives, or at least the life of the kidney. They never get to stop taking them. The body never accepts that kidney as being part of their body. They have to take these medications for the rest of their lives. And these medications have really significant side effects to them. So, I mean, it's really common sense when you stop and think about what we're doing, suppressing your immune system. Well, yes, that's going to make you more susceptible to infections. It's going to make you more susceptible to cancers. Um, and it increases your chance of, of heart disease. That's why we do all of this testing to make sure that someone is truly a transplant recipient to begin with. So our absolute contraindications. Metastatic cancers. Obviously, if someone has an ongoing cancer, they're not a candidate. <coughs> ongoing or reincurring infections that we just can't clear up. A good example of this is the diabetic patient that has that foot ulcer that just never seems to heal. Um, <coughs> serious conditions that are unlikely to be improved. There are a number of autoimmune diseases out there that are made worse by these medications, so obviously that has to be a consideration. As I said, active AIDS, someone who is HIV positive and is get under treatment and their uh, viral load is negative, we can certainly go ahead and transplant them if they have active AIDS. Consistent patient noncompliance. This is probably the one category that every transplant program struggles with the most. Because it's hard. It's really, really hard to qualify quantify patient noncompliance or non-adherence or whatever term you use you wish to use for this. Um, it's hard because first of all 
almost everyone, particularly if they're younger, uh, <coughs> take a fairly young adult and they find out that they have kidney failure. There isn't, I don't think, a human being out there that doesn't go through a period of time where the thought is in their head that if I just ignore this, it will go away. It can't be real. And they all go through it. Everybody would. It's just natural. You know, it's, yeah, it's a horrible diagnosis. I'm 34 years old. I can't possibly be in kidney failure. So that, that's always a piece of it. It may take them a few months to really accept this diagnosis and to buy into the fact that they really have to work with their physician team, their medical team, the nurses, to get their disease under control. Um, so there is that piece of it. Um, there are lots of people out there who have spent years never truly engaging themselves in their own medical process. And that's true for a whole, I mean, a whole group of people. So it really takes someone who is self-invested and self-aware to make a great transplant patient. Um, you have to be willing, you have to be able, you have to be self-aware enough to work with the doctors, to work with the nurses, and that whole multi multidisciplinary team to really get it and to really make your treatment regime work for you. Um, so it, it's, like I said, it can be very, very hard to quantify exactly who fits into this category and who doesn't. And the toughest group we have are the late teenagers, the early 20s, the kids who want to be just like their friends and go out and party and what do you mean I have to take this pill exactly every 12 hours? Um, you know, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. Complications from medications that are unacceptable to the patients. In transplantation, we really work very hard at good patient education because it is the key to what is going to happen from that moment forward. If a person truly does not understand what is going on in their bodies and what these medications are going to do and not do, um, then uh, again, it's not going to work. And so in that process of educating the patient, there are patients who say, you know what? I understand everything that you've told me, and I've decided the transplantation is not for me. And that's OK. It is much better to know that up front in the process than find that out six months after we've given them the kidney and they've decided the medication side effects just are not something that they want to do with. Um, and so it's really critical, again, that they understand this entire process up front before the transplant happens. There are many people who are perfectly stable on peritoneal dialysis, you know, doing their dialysis at home at night and they go out and they work during the day and they're functional just exactly the way they are and there are people who decide not to take the medications um, and to continue with the treatment that they're doing transplantation is the treatment option um, and absolute severe heart or vascular disease obviously is a contraindication relative contraindication is just that the relative it depends you know, does your patient have one thing on this list, or do they have six things on this list? Um, how severe is it? And that's, again, why we go through this big evaluation process, because every patient has to be evaluated as an individual. Um, general condition, I stuck that up there. Is it a vague term? Yes. <laughs> what does it mean? It's the general condition of the patient. How frail are they? Um, testing for frailty has become a big thing in transplant because it really has been linked to uh, poor outcomes if your patient is exceedingly frail. And so that is, that's, a, that's the general condition of the patient and that's, that's what I mean by that. Um, if your patient can't walk more than 20 feet down the hallway without huffing and puffing and their legs cramping out, um, then there's an issue. 
Um, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but smoking's bad for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's right. And so obviously we all know the medical risks of smoking. It leads to heart disease, it leads to cancer. Well, there are also multiple studies out there that shows that these increase graft loss after a transplant. Um, because you smoke, you build up plaque in your vessels. If those blood vessels that you're filling up with plaque are heading into this new transplanted kidney, you're going to get less blood flow to the kidney. And guess what? It's not going to last all that long. So we highly recommend that people don't smoke. There are certain age groups and medical groups that insist that they don't smoke. Um, not everyone. There are people that we will work with them while they're listed for a kidney and try to get them to smoke prior to their surgery. A transplant does work. That is the good side of all of this. Um, the risk of death, the national one-year patient survival rate after a kidney transplant is 95%. Pretty good statistics. The risk of death is highest within the first three months after surgery. So part of that is simply because the patient has undergone surgery. So that's an onslaught on their body. But also a part of that is that they get stronger drugs immediately after the surgery. The highest chance of rejection of a kidney are also within those first couple of months post-transplant. So transplant patients tend to start off on pretty high dosages of medications. We're going to go over some of the medications in a second. Um, but we give them some pretty big gun drugs during the actual surgery, at the time of surgery, while they're in-house. And then over a period of time, those dosages will lessen. Um, so obviously, if they're getting a new heavy heavily immune suppressed immediately after having a major surgery, that's going to put them at higher risk. And again, the evaluation process is all designed to kind of tweak out what everybody's individual risk is. The sad part is that kidneys don't last forever. Um, there are patients out there who've had their kidneys for 30 years, but unfortunately those are few and far between. Um, the very, the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems, is that the very medications that we give people to suppress their immune systems, to allow their bodies to accept these kidneys, because unless they're getting a kidney from an identical twin, um, then the DNA of the cells of that kidney is different than what they are. So we have to suppress their immune systems for their bodies to accept this. One of the biggest side effects of the medications, over time, the actual medication will become toxic to the kidney. So the very drugs that we use to solve the problem, in the end, can, can become the problem. It also depends on whether they've gotten a deceased donor transplant or a living donor transplant. Living donor transplants last much longer than the deceased donor transplants. Um, it depends on whether or not they've had a rejection episode immediately after we put the kidney in, or how many rejection episodes they've had. Did they have one? Did they have three? And how severe were they? Every hit they take kills off some kidney cells. So eventually, that kidney is going to wear out. Um, like I said, there are a few people who've had their kidneys out there for 20, 25, 30 years, but not a whole lot of them. Um, getting that kidney to last longer is one of the things that the transplant community works at all the time. <coughs> the good part about transplant, because there are good parts about transplant, um, is absence of dialysis. So not, yeah, peritoneal dialysis may not be that bad. You have tubes in your abdomen, you get to do dialysis at home while you sleep. Quality of sleep is not that great because you've got a machine running beside you all night long. Um, but most people end up on hemodialysis eventually. So you're talking four hours a day, three days a week, minimum. That's a big impact on somebody's life. Um, so, and we do dialysis different here in this country than a lot of people in Europe do it. A lot of people in Europe go to dialysis every day. They do it differently. Um, fluid restrictions. If you're a dialysis patient and have been on dialysis for a while and your kidneys are failing, 
Um, you know, the first part of the kidneys when they start to fail is they stop filtering things. And then eventually they stop putting out urine. So if you're no longer able to get rid of your excess fluid during the day through your kidneys, it means that you now have to restrict whatever fluids you take in. And I have met people who could have no more than two cups of fluid a day in everything they ate and drank. And if you think about that, that's, that's a pretty tough way to live. Pretty tough way to live. Not only that, on top of that, they have to follow a renal diet, which basically is, as far as I see, pretty much the worst diet on the face of the earth. Everything that's really healthy for you, you can't eat. So they can't have a lot of fruit. There are a lot of vegetables they can't eat. They can't eat foods. Because all of these add metabolically to the system things that they can no longer get rid of. So their diet is very restricted. In transplant, that's no longer true. <coughs> so all of those things reverse. A transplant means they have a functioning kidney. And the kidney will filter and make urine and do all the things that a kidney is supposed to do. So that is the good part of the transplant. And that is the reason why a lot of people will opt for transplantation, even though they may know that they may not get 30 years out of a kidney. 10 years of quality life is often a great payoff. So, um, a lot of people um, are able to go back to work, but basically we say that the patient is able to return to a normal life, minus taking all these medications. But they are able to do things. They can travel. They can, you know, they can go back to their normal life prior to dialysis, whatever that definition is for that particular patient. So this is a list of our current medications. Um, all of the items, prednisone, Celsept, these are the choices of the pills, the everyday pills that patients can take. And they may take a combination of these um, based on each, again, each person's medical history and, and system. The drugs on now my left <laughs> are the IV drugs. These are the big drugs. These are the drugs that we use for what we call induction, meaning that initial dosages of medication that we're giving that patient during the actual surgery and maybe for a few days after that. We also use these drugs to correct a rejection episode if a patient is having them. These drugs pretty much wipe out a person's immune system. Um, so that makes them at very, again, very high risk at that initial um, time period. So traditionally, um, the traditional regimen of immune suppressive drugs is a combination of three drugs. It's giving, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> there it is, there's the pointer. <laughs> I hit the wrong button. Um, so it's a combination of steroids, usually prednisone, um, taking either neuro, which is cyclosporin, prograt, which is tacrolimus, which are what we call um, calcineurin inhibitors. These inhibit the immune system from recognizing foreign materials. And taking either cell set or, or rapidly, um, which stops the production of white blood cells. Uh, so traditionally, this is what most people have been on. This is what a lot of people will see, that they take a combination of these three drugs. And the theory behind it was always that if you gave a combination of three drugs, you could give lesser dosages of those drugs and still provide a broad-based um, coverage for immune suppression. The idea of all immune suppression is to find a balance act. And this is, this is the hard part for physicians in transplant because everybody's balance point is different. We want this spot right here, that middle point between the good, keeping the kidney, keeping the immune system at bay, freedom from dialysis, and all those bad side effects that the drugs have. And everybody's balance point is different. Um, we start a lot of times on basing our drugs by weight, but then we have to adjust them by blood level because everybody absorbs these medications differently. It depends on everybody's body 
uh, their GI tract, every, every person is different. So we rely a lot on drug levels. So when the physicians are on the floor screaming and yelling because the timing of the drug level wasn't perfect, this is, this is why. Because without that drug level being what it's supposed to be, they can't adjust the dose of the medication. Um, so we talked a little bit about side effects. Um, the calcineur inhibitors are programmed with cyclosporin, again, increasing infection, cancers, especially skin cancers. We see a ton of skin cancers. We hand out SPF 100 to everybody. Use your sunscreen. Uh, it increases cholesterol levels, which is why it really leads to heart disease. And especially cyclosporin has horrible side effects of really bad gum overgrowth. People have to have excellent dental care if they're taking that, and hair growth. This is, um, cyclosporin was the earlier drug that we used for immune suppression. It was the first real immune suppressive, specific immune suppressive drug that came out. Um, it's only been around since the early 1980s. It's not terribly old. Uh, program is, was at about uh, six, seven, eight years after that. Um, but that first few years of using cyclosporin, we used really high dosages of it, and it caused horrible gum overgrowth and people grew hair everywhere. Well, for a bald guy, that may not be bad, but if you're 21 years old and you're a female, suddenly sprouting black hairs from your face was not very much fun. And so um, people were not sad when people, when we stopped using, when the transplant community stopped using it. Prednisone. Lots of people have taken prednisone for lots of different things, all right? It's, it's uh, anti-inflammatory. does lots of great things. Take it when you have bad asthma attacks. You take it when you have bronchitis. Again, bad if you have a, if you have arthritis and you have a flare-up, you might get a course of prednisone. Um, but if you're a person who has to take it every day for years, you're looking at weight gain, which can cause type 2 diabetes, lots of mood swings, and unfortunately, long term, the really bad thing is it causes bone and muscle atrophy. Um, so people have taken prednisone for years and using this the traditional three-drug regimen, we saw necrosis of the hips. Young people having to have total hip replacements. Um, just, just body wasting. Uh, not, not a good picture. So this um, shows um, a slide. So again, remember, the, the the idea is finding this balance point of these medications. Um, but this was, a, it's an older study, and um, it just shows that um, your dose of drug is directly related <coughs> to rejection. It's kind of obvious. Um, so, what, obviously what we want to do is to prevent this rejection from occurring. So, but we also recognize all the side effects. So the first drug that a lot of people tried to take away from transplant patients were the steroids because of those horrible long-term effects. Um, at Dartmouth, we started doing triple, triple, all of a sudden I can't talk, triple drug therapy in 1997. Um, on prednisone, patients gained 30% of their pre-transplant weight. So 10, 30 pounds of weight would be added on after transplant. We had the long-term side effects. As an immune suppressant, it's actually the least effective. Um, and so that was the first thing they tried. Let's try taking away the prednisone to lessen the side effects. So it was pretty successful, except for a few patients. But overall, it worked pretty well. So now at least we're down to two drugs. So the calcineurin inhibitors, the program, the cyclosporin, um, they started to reduce those dosages. Well, you can only go so far. If you reduce them too far, then you start developing um, some problems. So the rationale, though, of trying to get rid of them, as I said before, these drugs will eventually lead to kidney toxicity. 
So that's the whole idea behind it. If we can lessen the dosage of the drugs, maybe we can make these kidneys last longer. But unfortunately, if you go too far, you lead to high rejection rates. So this is a class of drug that we have to give the patients at least some. We cannot take it away altogether because 20 to 30% rejection rates are just not acceptable. <clears throat> now, one of the groups, unfortunately, that they have found over the years that just cannot tolerate um, reduction of medication is blacks, African Americans. There is something in their immune system that makes them at higher risk for rejection of organs. And so, um, trying to withdraw for these folks just unfortunately doesn't work. Um, they have a much higher rate of, um, of rejection with lower doses. So that is unfortunately one class of people that we have to watch very carefully and you'll see more African Americans, more blacks using the traditional triple drug therapy uh, and not going to anything lower than that. So just a little bit of history. So we started the, pro the pro kidney transplant program here started in 1992. Um, averaged 20 to 25 kidneys per year for several years. The um, number of people that we're trying to reduce are very, off these drugs are very highly selective recipients. Um, this is a study, by the way, that Dr. Trevini the percentage of deceased and living on the transplants are nearly equal. Now, in the early days, um, UNOS, which I'll talk about UNOS in a second, that is the, uh, the large federal agency that oversees transplantation in this country, they gave New England a variance. There was a, one of their, sorry about that, one of their major uh, managers within the system, Dr. Burdick, allowed New England to have a variance where we got to basically use the kidneys that we recovered in within our own region. It was great. We were doing tons of transplants during those years. Um, but in 2014, they took away all the regional variances. And so um, that's no longer true. We'll talk about that system in a second. Um, but until that time, we were doing a lot of deceased donor transplants within a rural region. So we had a lot of people that he was able to um, bring into this study. So they started, again, with the triple drug therapy. Um, they introduced with, keep doing that, I'm the wrong way. They introduced with solumedrol. They primed with high dosages of their calcium and mineral inhibitors, uh, the ProGraph for two days before surgery. We used to actually start giving the patients drugs before the surgery. So this was the early way that they started. Um, no injection agents. We didn't have any of those big guns, IV drugs that I showed you before. That's how it started. Um, so Dr. Chobanian, our medical director here at, at the transplant program said, okay, let's start looking at this. So the first thing that he looked at was population settings. We have the perfect group of people to try to reduce medications on because we're mostly white. So Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont is the, has the lowest percentage of minorities of any states in the country. So we have a very homogeneous group of people. So if you're going to use a group of people to do a study on, this is a great place to do it. Um, so again, the history is 92 to 97, they used triple drug therapy, the traditional one that I showed you before. Their acute cellular rejection rates were 6 to 8% per year. Graph survival in three years was 85%. So in 1998, they started by withdrawing the prednisone. That's a good place to start. Still had low cellular rejection rates, and graph survivals were the same, if not a little better. In 1999, um, they withdrew the steroids and the salsa and only used tacrolimus by six weeks in a specific patient group. So again, no African Americans, no people who were at risk for immunological problems, uh, second transplants, for example, 
more transplants you get, the more messed up your immune system becomes and the higher dosages of medications you require. So <clears throat> this was a start. Incredibly low rejection rates and great breast and viral. So we have a huge percentage of our patients who are taking one medication. Less medication, less side effects. That's the goal. And this is different. There aren't other places that are getting to do this. So right now, 2005 to the present, um, who gets to have this monotherapy? So they use either one of these two drugs for their initial induction, their medication that they receive at the time of the transplant. They withdraw the other drugs somewhere along about the six-week group. The patients included in this study, initial kidney transplants. These are the causes of their renal disease, so causes that aren't causing a lot of metabolic problems within the patient's system already. They have to have less than 20% sensitivity, so we're testing their immune system to see how much genetic stuff they react to, and if it's less than 20%. Um, Caucasian and Asian recipients only, and no high-risk patients, again, patients that we expect that their immune systems may react. Child to mother is an interesting comment, because the reason for that is because when you carry a child, during the birth of a child, the mother and the baby's blood mixes. So the mother is introduced to genetic factor that is not like her, because that baby is genetically half like its father. It causes all kinds of immune response in females, unfortunately. So these are some of the results of this study ongoing so far. We have 162 patients in this study, all residents of New Hampshire or Vermont. The mean age at the time of their transplant, 54.7. Um, more males than females because of that issue, mostly Caucasian. Um, mean follow-up so far is 7.1 years, although we have some patients as long as 12 years. Um, 48. 0.2% deceased from the transplants, 51.8 living, about half and half. Um, this is their causes of kidney failure. And these are our results. Pretty low rejection rates, cellular, pretty low cellular rejection rates, um, drug toxicity, and pointers dying. <laughs> Drug toxicity is pretty low. We have a 9.3% documented drug toxicity. 24% is the national average, so much less. And that's the point of reducing all of this. 87% of all patients still have a functioning graft censored for death, meaning that if a patient died, they died with a functioning graft. The mean Creatinine. Now, your normal creatinine, if you don't know this off the top of your head, is 1.3 or less. Transplanted patient at 1.7, that's still pretty damn good. Pretty good. So, they did find a very high rate of recurrent disease um, with GM, glomerular nephritis. So, they, they are now excluding Dr. Trevanian and now excluding those patients from the study. Um, and I won't go through all of these, but that just goes through um, some of the side effects, the cancers that we've seen, the other side effects that we've seen, the things that we need to look at that we do are the things in green. Um, we have, again, a lot of, a lot of skin cancers. And for some reason, we have a lot of UTIs. This might be a little quality project we need to take on in the future. Uh, we don't know why we have a lot of UTIs in this group, but we do. So, something to look at. What does this mean? It means that we know, at least in a certain group of people, we can sustain a, their graft function beyond 10 years, that we have less cellular rejections, less drug toxicity, less cancers, except in skin cancers, 
and less infections, except those nasty UTIs. So what does this mean? This is just a graph showing the general age group of all people together. It means that these people get to be on this graph and not some special graph where they're dying at a different rate. So one of the things that's really important is getting these people actually to transplant. And we try to do that fairly quickly because the longer that a person stays on dialysis, preemptive, more than 24 months on dialysis, the different diseases, if you're on dialysis more than 24 months and you have diabetes, your relative risk of death is this box way over here. That's not pleasant. So getting people transplanted as quickly as we can either preemptively, meaning before they've actually started dialysis, or as soon as possible after they start dialysis is incredibly important. So once we've gone through all of this, we've done their evaluation, they've had, you know, the point is getting them transplanted, like I said, as quickly as possible. Now, all patients have a choice. They can have a deceased donor transplant or a living donor transplant. Um, PHI stands for Public Health Institute, these are increased risk donors. These are donors that, um, one big example that we're dealing with right now is the opioid crisis. So these are donors that may have died of something that they're in increased risk for spreading an infection. It could be a drug overdose. It could be any anything else. It, they could be exposed, their uncle had TB. It, there are a million different things that fit under this category. Um, with deceased donors, it could be that we don't have a complete medical history because we can't find any family. There are a number of reasons why a donor can be considered high risk. Um, but these are things that we have to consider when we're talking to patients. So the actual documented statistics of catching an infection from an increased risk donor is less than one in 1,000. That's a lot less risk than if you're diabetic and staying on dialysis. So again, this leads to excellent patient education and explaining all of these to them. We have what are known as extended criteria donors. We don't really call them that, that anymore. We have a number that we give them. Um, but basically, these donors are over the age of 65. They may have a history of hypertension. They may have some mild diabetes. But if you're 72 and you're waiting on the list for a kidney, do you need a kidney that's going to last 30 years or a kidney that's going to last 10 years? Might be good enough. And that's what would fit into this category. <clears throat> so if you're a person and, you're waiting and you're, you've gone through this entire process, this evaluation process, and you are considering staying on the deceased donor list because you really don't want to consider a living donor, well, what you need to know is your average wait time is now five years or better for a kidney. Patients are listed by their blood type, they are listed by their wait time, and the wait time does vary a little bit by blood group. Um, here at Dartmouth, um, these were the numbers from last year. This is, there were 15 organ donors here. 55 organs were recovered. Two organs did end up going for research, but 53 organs were transplanted. That's pretty good. Pretty good for all you people up in the OR up there and all the hard work they do with these organ donors every day. So as I said, UNOS is the United Network for Organ Sharing. They are the federal agency that currently holds the contract under the Department of Health and Human Services that oversees transplantation in the United States. So the, the country is divided into regions, and that's how organs are distributed, just for a little less of an organ donation. Um, we're region one, again, takes up most of New England. Um, so if a patient dies within New England, their organs are going to be offered within New England first. If they can't find a suitable recipient, it's going to be offered out nationally. Not necessarily to the next region. It could be anywhere within the nation. Um, but that's kind of how it works. So it's not kidney, kidneys that are recovered here at Dartmouth don't necessarily go to patients here at Dartmouth, um, or even anybody from New Hampshire. This is the current national waiting list as of a week ago. I looked all these numbers up. 
So in total, nationally, we have 100, over 125,000 people in this country waiting for an organ. So because of that, there are so many people waiting. The waiting list is greater than five years. We'd really like to promote the donation. And we do that because they don't have to wait on the list. If you have a living donor, it means that we work you up, we work up your living donor, you get to have surgery. Could be three to six months after you initially walk through our door. That's a heck of a lot better than waiting for five years. So, and a lot of people, if we can catch them at that end stage um, part of their disease and they haven't yet started dialysis and they have a living donor, sometimes they can even avoid ever going on dialysis. We like living donor kidneys because they work better. They last longer, they work better. That is the reality of it. The first living donor kidney transplant happened in 1954, December of 1954, almost on my birthday. I consider it a big deal for me. I don't know why. <laughs> I can't believe I did this. Probably mostly because these were twin brothers, they were from me. So the surgery happened at the Brigham and Women's in Boston, but the, the pair were from Maine. Um, I actually met this donor. He died about three years ago, but um, I got to meet him many years ago. And um, the recipient's daughter actually was a dialysis nurse that I worked with for a while. So that was pretty cool. She doesn't remember a lot about her dad and this famous surgery. She just remembers him being sick a lot when she was a kid. So the vet quickly, um, Evaluation of the living donor, the risk, the whole idea of using a living donor is that yes, we are asking a healthy living person to give up a kidney. Um, and it's very important that we do these evaluations correctly. The risk to the donor has to be low. The donor has to be fully informed of all short and long-term risks. Um, the decision has to be fully voluntary. And the transplant must have a reasonably good chance of providing a successful outcome for the recipient. So we're not necessarily going to do a living donor transplant if we feel that the recipient is super high risk. We have to kind of weigh that. Um, these, are, these can sometimes be tough conversations. And in living donation, we spend hours and hours and hours with these people for education, going over these risks, going over this information with them. Um, medical evaluation of the living donor in general. We don't take diabetics. No significant hypertension. If someone has mild hypertension, controllable with one medication, and they're older, um, we may consider them. No major cancers, except some minor skin cancers. Age, again, a relative risk. Um, obesity, their BMI has to be under 35 simply because we know that people who undergo these surgeries are at some risk and we want to minimize that. They cannot have significant cardiovascular disease and they obviously they must have perfectly normal kidney function. Um, they, again, they have to do all their cancer screens. And um, so these, our nice, healthy kidneys, this is my donor and recipient picture, all in one picture. But this is the, from here up, it's the donor. If these other donors, <laughs> nice, healthy kidneys up here, what they're going to do is they're going to cut the blood vessels on one, cut the ureters close to the blood, actually, they cut it right here, right above the iliac vessels. They take that kidney out, and in the recipient, the kidney goes down here, near the bladder. Because you have a shorter ureter, they cut the ureter about halfway right there, the, the kidney's got to be closer to the bladder. So the kidney rests in the iliac fossa of the, the um, hip. And, uh, and so the artery and, and the vein. Recovery from this type of surgery for the donor, usually only in the hospital for two to three days. We see them generally about two weeks afterwards. And their time out of work varies you know, with their age and their general medical condition, but typically somewhere between two to six weeks they're out of work. Um, so it's fairly short. It's very typical of any type of laparoscopic surgery. Long-term risk, the biggest surgical risk that we see is that we, they will occasionally develop a hernia in their incision site, and they can have prolonged problems with gas, constipation, 
um, these types of things. We do monitor them for a minimum of two years. Some people come back to us long after that. We send information out to their PCP so they can be monitored as well. And really the highest risk that people have seen is this metabolic syndrome. It's making sure that the donors don't gain weight and that they're not becoming at risk for diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes and that whole syndrome. Um, that is the biggest risk to them because anyone with type 2 diabetes is at risk for developing kidney problems. So the last five minutes, the important thing is how do we increase living donation? So it's, we can't really increase deceased donor. It's, you know, we can educate the public saying yes to organ donation. Most people do these days. But the reality is, is there are a whole, not everyone who dies can be an organ donor. A person who is an organ donor, if you think about it, is someone who is relatively healthy to begin with. And they die of some type of head injury or a brain ischemic event. They are not someone, you know, all, and that's not how most people die. Most people die of some type of medical problem. They have cancer, they have heart disease, all of these things. And none of those people can be organ donors. So really the only way to increase transplantation in this country and affect that 125,000 people waiting for all organs, but over 90,000 of them waiting for a kidney is to increase living donation. So, in some rare cases, I won't go into the details, but in some rare cases, we can actually transplant people across blood types. They've done that here at Dartmouth. We have a blood type incompatible transplant program. Um, so it requires a lot of testing, but and it can't be done with everybody, but in a small subgroup, we can do that. Um, so we can, we can sometimes transplant across a positive cross-match, uh, genetic response between the donor and the recipient. We can do that by doing things like wiping. So what we basically have to do is wipe out the recipient's immune system to allow them to accept a living donor. So plasmapheresis, very high dosages of IVIG and lots of immune suppressants, usually thymoglobulin, which again will wipe out their white blood cells. So that's a possibility. So that's one of the programs that can happen. Um, <clears throat> getting rid of financial burdens. Of all the things that living donors come to us and say, well, the reason I can't donate is because I can't afford it. Now, we pay for all the medical costs of every living donor. But medical costs are not the only things to consider in these scenarios. There's travel to the hospitals multiple times. There's their time out of work. There's long-term follow-up. There's lots of things that the donor may end up paying for that are not covered. So this is one thing that the transplant community is really working on, is trying to get rid of these financial burdens. And there is the National Living Donor Assistance Program is in existence that in some cases can help a donor with travel costs, but it doesn't cover everyone. Um, kidney swap programs. This is the latest thing in transplantation. Um, if you can't, if you're a healthy living donor and you can't give to your brother, maybe you can give to somebody else. And maybe we can find a donor for your brother in someone who's in a similar situation. So, I'm talking too long because it's almost one o'clock. Um, so, incompatible care options, there are things to consider. Um, there are national programs that these people, we can register these people up that have a large pool of people that we can match people up between donors and recipients. Um, NKR, UNOS um, are two of these examples. They both have large uh, swap programs within their systems. The problem is, is that we don't get a lot of control over these things. When they match somebody up, they tell you when you're having surgery. Um, but the surgery is done here at Dartmouth for the donor. Um, you've probably done, the OR I'm sure has done these cases where we recover a kidney from a donor and it gets shipped to Maryland or California or someplace else. And then later in the day, we get a kidney from someplace else. Um, you can do swap programs within your own system and we've done a couple of those in this past year where we've just taken people on our list and matched them up. Um, so that's a way of increasing living donation. So this slide is just an example of kind of how this works. Again, this person is not compatible with the person they wanted to give to. 
but they give to this. And this is a simple two-way swap, and this is what you'll see a lot of times when we're doing the local. Um, you'll see these, these little simple swaps. Sometimes they're longer, um, and sometimes we get what we call anonymous donors. These are people who literally walk through our door and say, I'll give you my kidney. They've seen a story on TV. They know somebody who has had a kidney failure and they weren't able to give directly to them. And you, usually all the anonymous donors that I've dealt with have had some contact with, with someone with kidney failure that they know that they weren't able to donate to. And they come forward and just say, I'm going to give somebody a kidney with no particular person in mind. These are the people that start the chains that you see on the national news and on the front page of the paper. They give to somebody else. This donor gives to somebody else. This donor gives to this. Now, traditionally, the way that these chains work, they always ended by this last person over here, this last donor on the end, giving to somebody on the deceased waiting list. That's not a bad thing. but. These days, the other option is it starts a second chain. Okay. So you start with the altruistic donor up in the corner, they go, and then that donor at the end, rather than giving to somebody on the deceased list, starts a second chain, and we do it again. So that's pretty cool. That means one person can start a chain that could mean 20, 30 transplants. And then the most interesting part right now, the most recent thing, is a simple thing that NKR has started where it's a simple pay it forward plan. Where a donor comes forward, they start a chain, and the donor at the end just waits. And they could end up waiting months. And they pay it forward to another chain later on. So it's relying on people's good intentions. But we've found over the years there are very few living donors that ever pull out of these systems. So the more people who want to pay it forward in these, this day and age are going to get more people transplanted. So altruistic donation is really the upcoming thing. It's strangers giving to strangers. And you know the traditional way of getting this word out local education forums, discussion of living uh, donations, any time you do organ and tissue donor presentations. Um, but what's really important is making sure that people understand that it's up to the transplant program to determine whether or not these people are suitable or not. Don't move people out on your own. Oh, you're 65 and can't donate. So in conclusion, living donor living donation saves lives. And it's really the way, the only way that we're going to increase donation in the future. So, thank you, everyone. to some, someone is something that has to be done <coughs> relatively close to the surgery because these recipients are often ill and if they've had a, an event that sensitizes their immune system, for example, blood transfusions, that's going to change whether or not the compatibility works or not. Like, I mean, I think they, and I don't know if they still educate, like if someone in your family needs transfusions, they don't. 
over a period of time. They don't want your immediate family giving because of that piece. So that's still a piece they say not to do. Like, not to do? Well, like when my son needed transfusions, we didn't give transfusions for him because they didn't want us to build up antibody, him to develop antibodies against our blood. That, that is the interesting part. You think of family members being the best possible donors, but sometimes they're not right. because you can build up antibodies against your own family, yes. Right, for yes. the chance that you might need to donate later. Yep. So that's still a case. Okay, just to know that. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.